On this episode of A State of Control, we continue the conversation about user experience. This time we have some experts that can talk to it, as well as a programmer who's responsible for implementing it. All that and more on A State of Control. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. A State of Control. A State of Control, Episode 75, Customer First. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Atlas IED, innovative audio solutions for every business environment. Welcome to A State of Control, an AV Nation podcast that highlights the control, programming, and automation aspects of the AV industry. My name is Steve Greenblatt. I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. So today's episode is particularly exciting because we're going to be hearing from some industry experts and talk about what goes into developing and delivering a quality user experience and how programmers can learn how to do that and how, how to contribute and, and also the do's and don'ts of what goes into a user experience. And for those of you who've been following at home, we've talked about this topic a little bit in the past. So if you want to reference some past episodes, you can look at episode 44 and also 69 is the most recent one. So let's dive in. With me to discuss today's topics are some guests that I think are, are really experts in the field. And um, before we get started, unfortunately today, Uncle Richie, Rich Fragosa isn't going to be joining us. He had to tend to some family matters and we wish him well and look forward to seeing him in the future. Uh, so we're, as I said, we're honored to have some industry experts, two of which are new to the show, um, one of which is a returning guest. So I'll start with him. And he is Brian McGrogan from Verex. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you very much for having me again, Steve. Great to be here. Thank you. And next, uh, she is the user experience manager at Crestron and her name is Karen Goldman. Welcome, Karen. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And last but not least, he is the Director of User Experience at Snap AV, and he is Brad Baldwin. Welcome, Brad. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Steve. Excited to be here. Glad you can make it. Uh, so we've talked, as, you, as I said at the top, about user experience in past episodes, and it's, it's really a buzzword in technology right now. And um, even to the fact that um, Infocom changed their name to Avixa, which includes user experience or the uh, interactive experience in, in the, the name. Uh, so it's just such a, a way right now to identify how technology and a user come together. Uh, and, and it is something I think that a lot of companies are putting a lot of time and money and investment in. So from a programmer's perspective, a lot of times they're responsible for delivering such a user experience, but they have to work with the manufacturers that give them the tools to do so. So Brian, I'm gonna start with you. Um, in your opinion, uh, what makes a user experience a hot topic these days? <laughs> well, you know, I think a lot of things in our industry and 
uh, and, and really all over that are driven right now is the other devices that we use in our life, right? So I use my phone every single day, all day. And, you know, the user experience that you see there and the UI you see there really drives and translates into other places. So um, simplicity, uh, the the needs of the client, they they all drive that. And it seems to actually, or at least it feels like it changes almost weekly. So it, it happens a lot. Karen, uh, following up on what Brian said, a lot of what we talk about you know, we have user interface, and that's been something that 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 has been existed and and evolved for quite some time. And now we start to bring in this user experience. Talk to me about what what that means, and 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 how how does how do they differ? Okay, so when we I'll start with the user interface because that's kind of the tangible part of the product. That's what the user sees, and that's where we get into the aesthetic. So that's going to be your look, your feel, uh, colors, layout, and how, of course, how a user interacts with that. But that is informed by the user experience. And to kind of piggyback on your last question, I think the reason that UX is such a buzzword is because it really does cover a whole range of processes and skills that shape the experience of the user. So that's research, whether it's data collection to make informed decisions to drive the UI, or whether that's usability testing that we do on a live product to see how we can improve it or verify that it meets the goals. Uh, part of it is obviously the usability. So how do we define value for the user, make it intuitive? Uh, the information architecture, how does the user find things? The visual design plays into it and content. That That's all part of the user experience. It's kind of like a holistic view of the product from a user's perception and how we get that information from them. Brad, uh, you know, following up on, on what Karen said, there, there's a lot, obviously, that goes into this, and 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 what what I when I mentioned at the beginning, you know, a lot of manufacturers are putting a lot of time and money into making sure that they they can deliver such a user experience. From your perspective and and in your role, uh, what what is a key element in in making that happen? Just want to say, Karen nailed it. Everything she said is spot on. It would be hard to add much more to what she did there in, in her comments. I would say for me, everything starts at the customer and works backwards. Mm -hmm. And so every type of interaction, every type of situation has to start with that end user in mind. And the user interface, as Karen said, is, is the thing that gets manifest in the end. But the thing that's going into the user experience is trying to understand the pains, the problems, the, uh, the, the standard flows that somebody wants to get out of an experience. How do they get through things quickly and without confusion? And I would say the other thing is in our space, I say it's kind of challenging because we end up having a large group of users that age group is very vast. I mean, you might have a home that has younger children in it. And younger children obviously have not spent a lot of time using technology, yet they're probably the best mm -hmm. at adopting and understanding and being willing to experiment with the technology and not feel like they're gonna break it. 
but then we scale all the way up to someone that's probably in their retirement age. They've finally got that dream home and they may or may not have spent a lot of time in front of a computer in their industry. And uh, all of a sudden their house is smarter than them in a way. And it can be quite, quite confusing. The other thing I want to comment on here is also the fact that in a lot of these uh, types of situations, there might be a buyer that's really interested in having the technology in the house, but then there are the people that live with that buyer of the technology. And sometimes they come kicking and screaming. Sometimes they have their own desires. Uh, funny thing is, is they might uh, ask to have technology taken away but when you ask them, would you want me to bring back four remotes so that you can turn on the television? You know, no way. I wouldn't give that up. Okay, would you like us to, you know, make lighting less elegant and, and cool? No, I wouldn't do that either. So in some ways, the, uh, the people that are the ones that are worried about the technology are the first ones to say, I'm not giving it up. Mm -hmm. That's Brian, it. I, uh, you know, a lot of the responsibility in delivering the user experience rests in a programmer's hands, especially when you're talking about working with a, these, a flexible control platform that is, is customizable. And, and as Brad said, you know, it starts with the client. What, what does it take to be able to know how to satisfy that client or, or, or how, how to deliver for them what they're gonna define as a, a quality user experience? Well, it's interesting actually to touch on a piece that Brad just said is a lot of the times you don't necessarily know who the end user is going to be, right? When you're at my stage in the game as well. And the people that you're working with might not ultimately be the end user. And so you feel like you end up doing this two and three times because when the end user starts using it, all of a sudden it's, it's got to be different. Um, but from my side of things, from actually implementing it and, and driving it, I'm actually probably in a pretty lucky situation where I do most of the UI design and I do most of the user experience design, but um, one of my biggest challenges there is getting to the right people and getting to them early in the process. So I'm not just taking, not necessarily guesses, but educated guesses of how something should operate, how it should be simple, you know, looking at system design, um, et cetera. But another piece of that too is, is not just necessarily, right, when most people think of UX and, and you know, I think we still equate it back to UI a lot. They don't necessarily think about the hardware behind the scenes. And a lot of things that you can and cannot do if you don't have the right hardware behind the scenes, right? I can't necessarily provide you with good, reliable information on that interface if the hardware doesn't provide it to me. So I end up in a lot of situations where, you know, somebody thought, oh, no problem, I'm going to swap this piece of hardware for something that's a little bit cheaper, but it doesn't give me the information that I used to get. So now I can't provide that information to the end user or make intelligent decisions on where to deliver the end user based on the information coming from that hardware. So, so many things go into it. It, it becomes very complicated. And I think it, it really has to start early on as soon as possible in the process. Um, I think when, when we were, were chatting earlier um, briefly, I feel like it has shifted more and more and more and you almost need as much, if not more time in the UX side of things than the actual programming side of things. 
Yeah, it's such a good point. And I think as we talk about the users and not really being able to have the luxury to create personas and say, hey, these are each of our users. I think it just comes back and Brian, you use the word simple. It comes back to simplicity and I think it comes down to the fundamentals of UX. So if you picture that UX honeycomb with value in the middle, it's all about how does the user think how do they feel and how do they use the product? So just to kind of recap on those fundamentals, you know, a product should be useful, right? It should fill a void. If, if it's not useful or filling a need, uh, there's no real purpose, right? A product should be credible. So th this relates to the user's ability to trust the product, that it's going to do the job that it's supposed to do. Uh, desirability, and this is where the UI comes in, the whole visual aesthetic needs to be attractive, easy to understand. And desirability is actually an important one because the more desirable a product is, the more likely you're going to recommend it to a friend or a colleague. Um, we want to make sure that it's usable. So again, simple, easy. It should be designed to be familiar. Um, Brad, I think you said something about a user's uh, flow, and that's where we talk about understanding the user's mental model. You know, everything should be findable. So information should be easy to locate, easy to navigate. The user should be able to quickly get where they need to go. Um, and accessibility, of course, we want to make sure the design allows for users with disabilities to have the same experience. So I think that, you know, if we can come back to these fundamentals and really focus on these, it's this is more of that evidence-based UX because we don't always have the luxury, like you said, to, you know, have the time up front or to be able to interact with users. And I think these are things that programmers can understand as well. Brad, I'll uh, bring that over to you because you know, one of the things, and we talked about this a little bit before, is that Control 4 has has more of a of a predefined user experience or user interface. I'm sorry, and but but yet there's customization that happens behind the scenes, and and I think that that in some regards that, that's a strength, and I'm sure a lot of time has been put into to making that happen. Um, with that said. You know, talking about these different personas, is there, is how does something like that um, stretch over the you know the gamut of the different people that are that are potentially using it? You know that that seems like a, a big challenge. I'm I'm definitely going to say it's a big challenge, and in some ways, I'm not sure which challenge is is a worse or challenger evil in a sense because people like Brian. Um, you know, he is the one person to blame in a, in a way if the interface doesn't work the way he wants it, even though, you know, he's the guy who's trying to hook up that hardware and the software. Um, our integrators, in a way, are given the user interface that we've provided for them. And I know in the audio video space, especially in that world, that world is fairly well defined at this point, yet it's constantly changing and evolving. Um, if we were to open up a Spotify app from two years ago and put it next to the Spotify app today, we would all just kind of shake our head and say, oh my goodness, this thing has come so far and changed so much, um, which in some ways is great for that early adopter, technology enthusiast type person who loves to see change. 
There are people though that are now living in their homes and their homes, those are durable goods. Those are meant to last like for their lifetime. And so there's this careful balance between cool, cutting edge, constantly changing and durable, stable, consistent, reliable. You know, there's all of those things start to, to kind of play uh, against each other. I'll tell you from our perspective, we have to do a lot of research. We have to do a lot of thinking. We have to do a lot of feedback from our integrators. And we actually do a lot of work to talk with our end customer directly as well that will will be receiving the product. Um, and I would say one of the things that we've done in our space is we've kind of carved out a niche where the integrators can work hard on the, the back end side of things and use a lot of time to create elegant programming and make automation a real solution versus wiring everything up, making sure that it can control, in other words, turn off, turn on, change channels, do things like that. And so I, I think um, these solutions are varied because our customers are so different and they demand certain things. Um, I was talking to one of our integrators and the integrator said that he was working with uh, a prince in uh, Middle East and had very specific requirements for how something was going to look and work. And that's going to be a hard solution for us to nail because of the confinement that we have. Yet we have many customers who are you know, getting into their first smart home as a whole home solution where the price and affordability and the amount of customization that's needed, we can provide a real solution deep solution there and get a pretty wide breadth of technology in a customer's home. So it's, it kind of, kind of varies both sides. I, I'm not sure which is the, is the one to want to be on yet. Um, I think it's challenging on both sides for Karen to come up with stuff that's very extensible and will work across a large variety of hardware. That's hard work as well. So, uh, oh, Karen, I'll go back to you. And, and uh, you know, what, one of the ways that, that we got in touch was uh, you did a, a great presentation at Crestron Masters. And, and I thought it was particularly interesting because it spoke outside of the AV industry and, and allowed us to learn about um, these principles that we can bring in rather than talking about stuff that we, are, we perceive to be the rules. Um, and and uh, to Brad's point, uh, I know one of the things you mentioned too is its uh, user experience is not only about customizing a, a user interface for a control system, but could also be writing software and that that's used to maybe program a use a system or design a system. Um, how does that differ in, in the approach? Yeah, uh, you know, talk a little bit about about the um, you know, one being. You know the the, um, the the customization of a UI that is uh, that that that's completely a uh, a blank slate versus another one that says, okay, I'm I'm going to keep you in this box and say, okay, this is what it is that you're going to be doing. Yeah, and you know, I I don't think it's ever a blank blank slate. We try to provide templates and you know, kind of vanilla ways that a programmer can kind of work off that because we want to provide that guidance. But I think a lot of it too is, you know, talking about process and a mature UX practice kind of, we shift 
the way that we work. So, you know, when we think about designers and how we design, you know, kind of the old way of working. And Brad, I thought about this when you were talking about Spotify, um, kind of the old way of working, I think, is this feature focused design. So like here's a stack of business requirements, you know, very document heavy process hand that off to the designer and say, make something pretty. And I think when we talk about a Spotify or companies that are known for usability and that are evolving quickly, you have more user focused design. So this is where we're looking at designers as more problem solvers. So really understanding what is the user need or the pain point and how do we strategically solve those real user problems as opposed to just kind of, you know, reflecting the underlying system architecture and then making, you know, small changes, but it's still not a great experience because you're still not customizing it, you know, based on what a user is asking for, what a user needs. So, <clears throat> Brian, I, I'm going to uh, probably I'm going to I'm going to put the spark out that's going to start the, a little bit of a fire HTML5. <laughs> it, it, it's been something that we've talked a lot about and it's something that we know is coming and we know is very, very, very well used in and is a big part of the, the web industry, but now it's becoming part of the AV industry. Give, give me a little bit of breakdown from your perspective of what goes into that and, and also their there, there, the the ability to do some of the things that you may have been able to do before um, ha has been extended in some cases, but limited in others. Yeah, I think you know it, 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 we've been talking about it for feels like years now, right? And now it's actually here. And I have heard probably three times a day of the sunset of flash. The sunset of flash is approaching <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> and it feels like there is a countdown clock above my head for that one uh, at the moment. But I, I do, you know, in, in working with HTML5 and trying to start getting our library moving there, I have really enjoyed seeing the flexibility of that platform. Right. And and I'm trying to use our pain points in in our older design process to make it easily scalable across different devices. Right. So one of the things uh, I believe Karen brought it up earlier um, was in simplicity. I think Brad mentioned it, too. But especially now in a covid world. Right. We have to think about shared surfaces and what you can touch. And so the ability of HTML5 and if the interface is designed properly, if it is written properly, being able to go from the touch screen in the room or from you know, the other large surface immediately right down to my mobile device as well, right, makes things a lot easier and it really provides a lot of extra value, right? So now I'm in a scenario where I can walk into a conference room and I don't have to touch a shared thing. Right. I've got my phone with me and whether it be, you know, through Bluetooth beaconing or, you know, I just have my list and I bingo, I'm in, you know, that really, that really is a, a big piece of it. Um, I think Steve, from the programmer standpoint, it, it, sometimes it feels like we're really, you know, just treading water. And so now taking on a new, uh, you know, not necessarily new, but another, um, another piece that we're responsible for and that we have to do, it can at sometimes feel overwhelming, but also very exciting. So, you know, seeing what the web can do, seeing what you can do in HTML5, animation, scalability, uh, you know, just 
all the pieces of it are are very exciting uh, and I can't actually wait to finish my first project there I'm in the middle of redoing my house so that my wife can yell at me again for changing the interface on her <laughs> so so uh, Brad I, um, I I know that uh, a, a lot of um, control control four has uh, you know mobile device support and and I imagine HTML5 is part of that as well um, you know the the is does HTML5 kind of change the dynamic of who should be looking at designing the front end, or should we still look to be uh, considered uh, full stack in terms of being able to do the everything from the user side to the back end side with one person? I would say it's hard to do with one person. I think mostly because people think differently. Um, I would say for those that are the programmers out there, you got to think about that customer you're going to deliver the solution for and walk away. If you do a great job, they're probably not going to call that much. If you don't do a great job, they're going to call. And I think that that's one of the challenges is uh, making sure that you're delivering what you need for the customer. I think the the world that we're in right now with COVID, like Brian was saying, I mean, uh, it whether you're a server at a bar or you're, you know, an employee working at a corporation or you're working in a shared uh, office space in a way and you come and go, having the ability to, to kind of get an interface on the fly that's always up to date, that works for you and your need right then, that's super compelling. That is super powerful for, for people that are, for are looking for that kind of transient kind of solution. Um, I, the thing that most interests me about HTML5 in a way is that as we think about these server hosted type solutions that come down from the cloud in a way, those give you a lot of flexibility to programmers to be able to modify and change without creating a lot of interruption in customers' lives. Um, our solution is very much a non-present solution premise solution, I should say. And our solution really is um, pretty, pretty standard and wired up. But I'm watching all these solutions, especially in the commercial space, coming in more and more. And I think the technology has gotten to a place where it provides an awful lot of flexibility. And I think if anything, HTML5, in fact, if I were to roll back the clock 20 years ago and someone was to tell me that we would all be using iOS or Android apps on our mobile devices, I probably would have been the first one to say, really? It should be all HTML. It should be the exact same cross-platform. It should work look exactly the same. That's not where the industry actually is kind of at right now in a way because we still have iOS and Android. We're trying to build similar user interfaces. But in sometimes it's in the same in different stacks of technology. Again, HTML5 is one of those things that we all want to jump into because it creates that consistency and simplification in some ways for the programming side. So, Karen, uh, uh, programming is the key. There is that you now. Now, we're, when we're talking about HTML5, there there's certainly different ways to approach it. But one of the the differences about that is that. The user interface is designed in code, which is a little bit of a, of a different approach than what we're used to doing more of like a WYSIWYG editor where we're drawing buttons and so forth. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the challenges that are involved in that 
And of course, you know, at, at what, what, what's the upside? Yeah. So, I mean, HTML5 is super exciting. And like you said, there's upside and there's challenges. There's so much freedom and flexibility, which is the upside, but it's also the challenge because we want to, you know, control any mistakes from happening. Um, and I think, you know, to Brad's point, I don't think any one role can be responsible for everything, but with HTML5, the programmer has a lot more accountability because there's so much more that they can do. So I think that from a design perspective in terms of like the UI, the look and feel, the layout is a responsibility of a designer, but the usability of a product and how a user interacts with it is the whole team's responsibility. And for de developers, there's best practices that should be followed to optimize that experience and as UX SMEs, we need to empower them. Something that I've done for our developers is create a whole list of best practices and kind of a checklist of things to look at. Again, fundamentals from a UX perspective that we can apply to HTML, one of them specifically being accessibility. Now we really have an opportunity to create inclusive experiences. You know, something as simple as an alt tag can change the whole experience. You know, if you have a user that is visually impaired and they're using a screen reader, they need to be able to tab through, right? So this is something that's gonna happen on the programming end. They need to tap, tab through, they need to have focus states and an alt tag needs to be very specific. It can't just be like image five, image seven, link, right? And that's the responsibility of the programmer, but that's where we need to work with them and say, hey, what's a good descriptive uh, phrase that we can use to really support the user's ability to navigate the site? So that's just kind of like one small example, but there's so much more power in the hands of the programmer. So I think it's that much more important that you know the team weaves together and we kind of close those gaps that have historically been there between designer and developer. You okay. bring up a good point there, Karen, actually about like naming, you know, because <laughs> what makes sense in my head, you know, looking at code all day does not necessarily make sense in your head. So, and it's so easy to skip over that. Like I actually code and, you know, earlier in my career, I was like, I don't need to put the alt tags, you know, <laughs> right? Because you got to get it out the door. But yeah, like I, you got to work with the developers and a tip I use is close your eyes and navigate the site, just hitting tab. Can you figure out what's going on? You know, so you got to, you, you know, the developers are our users, right? So we got to figure out how to help empower them and work together. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think one of the strengths of a, a real good user experience person, and I, I didn't use the word designer there, mm. because I don't think that you have to be a designer per se. I think that's the title you come to when you work at an organization and you have traits and skills, but we can all be good user experience people. Thinking backwards from the customer, thinking about what we're trying to do for that customer will allow us to, to do a lot. In fact, I would say that Karen and I could probably send templates out with the right radius on the right buttons and the right font styles and all this other stuff. And we can strip out a whole bunch of the complexity of what it should look like, but whether or not 
you build a house with brick, a house with wood, a house with straw, uh, it's all going to be different depending on who's building it. Well, I think that's a good good way for us to wrap up. Thank you. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we we uh, have to manage our time, and uh, but it was just, as usual a great discussion, and we uh, and I'm sure it's one that will will continue as. I've said we've done several episodes on this and, and look to continue the conversation and uh, educate uh, those out there who are listening. So uh, thank you guys for being on the show today. Uh, first, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Brian McGrogan from Varex. How can people find you, learn more about Varex? Well, as Uncle Richie would say, you can find me on the interwebs, LinkedIn, <laughs> any, anywhere, uh, at B. McGrogan usually. Um, you can find Varex at, on the World Wide Web at varex.com. Uh, and I'm bmcgrogan at varix.com. Thanks for having me, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. And next, uh, Karen Goldman from Crestron. How can people find you and learn more about Crestron? Well, firstly, thanks for having me. That went way too fast. Um, Crestron.com. You can reach out to me also on LinkedIn or my first initial, K, and my last name, Goldman, at Crestron.com. Thank you. And last but not least, Brad Baldwin from SnapAV. How can people find you, learn more about SnapAV and Control 4? Yeah, I agree with Karen. Thanks so much for having me. This is way fast. It was fun, obviously. Uh, it's like uh, time just slipped out. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Brad Baldwin. I'm the one with uh, the face there that looks like this. And uh, I also would suggest people hit the SnapAV side uh, we use that as our kind of a portal for selling product to our partners and integrators. And then the control4.com site gives a little bit more information about our control platform and audio, video, lighting, security, other type solutions. Thanks. Uh, my name is Steve Greenblatt, and uh, you could reach me at Steve Greenblatt on social media platforms and my company Control Concepts at controlconcepts.net. Uh, but most importantly, uh, please come to avnation.tv to learn more about this show and all the other shows that make up the AV Nation network. Uh, while you're there, please visit the supporters who make this show and all the other shows pop possible. And uh, please uh, leave us a note, send us some feedback. And I know I always ask for uh, a review or a rating on, on a podcast app but also if you found this show uh, to be particularly valuable, reach out to the guests and, uh, and also promote it, uh, share it on LinkedIn or many of the other social platforms. I'm sure everybody would appreciate it. And we all, as I said, uh, miss Uncle Richie, look forward to seeing him on the next show. And if you wanna know, learn more or reach him, you can reach him, uh, Rich Fergoza at rfergoza uh, on Twitter and Fergoza Design com on the internet so that would do it for today for a state of control